we want to show that business can be a force for good. So we've been using our distillery to make hand sanitizer. So to date, we've made, shipped and donated over 300,000 bottles of medical grade hand sanitizer. We have supplied healthcare charities, we've supplied key frontline workers, and we've also supplied NHS hospitals as well. We're happy to use the resources we have, use the business we have to do what we can to help. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. Now, we wanted to take a moment to tell you about one of our favourite podcasts, What's In Store. Hosted by retail expert Andrew Busby and psychologist Sana Busby, every episode they bring together retail and consumer thought leaders to discuss all aspects of retail, the consumer, and even bring you helpful ways to manage your own well-being during the crisis. An extremely prevalent topic at the moment, of course, as you'll know by listening to this series. Now, What's In Store is available on Apple, Spotify, Spotify and all major podcast platforms and what's in store.fm. As always, we hope you tune in or you'll miss out. Today's guest is the founder of the Rocket Ship Brewery and brand known as Brewdog. From humble beginnings, James Watt and his co-founder Martin Dickey started the business in 2007 and within two years had opened their first bar in Aberdeen. Now fast forward 10 years and there are now over 80 pubs in the UK all run and operated by BrewDog. Now, BrewDog are well known for their rebellious marketing tactics and have recruited a clan of investors known as Equity Punks through a range of clever crowdfunding campaigns. This has meant that through all of this growth, that James and Martin still own over 40% of the business currently, although he might be about to tell us otherwise. Now, in more recent times, BrewDog have hit the headlines by producing and distributing over 250,000 units of hand sanitizer distributed free to NHS and charities. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome James Watt to the podcast. Hello, James. Hello. Thanks for having me today. How much of the introduction was uh, still correct? Because these things are moving quickly, right? Um, I think you nailed it. I think it was, uh, it was pretty much perfect. Excellent. I just wanted you to say that. It's just a confidence <laughs> boost to kick things off. Now, I mentioned your early days in the introduction and your rebellious tactics when it comes to marketing and fundraising. So I guess first question that seems really obvious is, were you a rebel as a child? <laughs> uh... I would say the answer to that question is is definitely yes. I think it was a, a nightmare at school, a nightmare for my teachers, and kind of always kind of find my own path and find my own way of uh, doing things. What's the worst thing you did as a child growing up? <laughs> uh, I think when I was uh, seven, uh, I was biting my nails all the time, and my parents bought me this stuff to paint in my nails, um, so my nails would taste horrible and I'd stop biting them. I decided to get a packet of Weathers Original Sweets. I spent all evening opening them, covered all the sweets with this stuff that tasted terrible, wrapped them back up, and then distributed in the playground. Um, two kids were actually physically sick, and I got sent home that day. I love it. That's, that's absolutely great. And it hasn't given you any insight into, uh, you know, how to encourage your customers to stop drinking your competitors' brew, I hope. <laughs> well, it's maybe the only time I've... Uh, made and distributed something that tastes as bad as Foster's, who knows? <laughs> right, okay. Well, did you did you come from an entrepreneurial family? As in, it's a very it's a very ambitious and unusual path. So is that in your blood? I don't think so. My mum was a, a school teacher. My dad was a fisherman. So he had a, he had a small business and was captain of a fishing boat up in the northeast of Scotland, but very much focused on, on fishing as opposed to business. Myself and Martin 
and I've known Martin since I was 11 years old. We went to university together. We were flatmates. We started making beer together at university. So we go way back and, and we were making beer at home. In 2006, we met Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, the famous beer and whiskey expert, not Michael Jackson, the pop star. Yeah, of course, that guy. <laughs> the not quite so famous one. He tasted a beer that we made at home, put the glass down and told us to quit our jobs and start making beer. So we thought, fuck it, if Michael Jackson's saying that, just let's do it. We uh, quit our jobs. We had £20,000 of life savings. We got a £30,000 loan from the bank. We cobbled together some secondhand bits of stainless steel equipment. We managed to lease a dystopian derelict fall into pieces industrial building from the council. And we set out with two humans and one dog in this big audacious mission to make other people as passionate about fantastic beard as, uh, as we are. Okay. Before you met Michael Jackson in that pivotal and some might say thrilling moment, uh, you had a brief career as a lawyer, I understand it. I got to be honest, I've only been talking to you for five minutes. And I'm not sure I trust you. Is that part of the problem? <laughs> Quite possibly. I lasted two weeks in a, a legal office. I was a, a law student at Edinburgh University. I spent four years there and uh, I got a job in a legal office. I got a couple of cheap suits and I sat there for two weeks just wondering what the hell I was doing. I hated it and it's like, this is not what I want to do with my life. This is glorified admin. So I quit. Uh, my parents were furious and I wanted to do something so far away from law. So I ended up spending the next few years working on a North Atlantic fishing boat. So you, you and Martin, you said you started brewing beer at university. Like, How on earth, for those listening that have no, no idea about how you brew beer, like, firstly, you clearly had a passion for it, but what, what do you need to actually start doing this? And were you doing this in like your garage, in your room? Like, What were you, were you actually doing? On a fishing boat? On a fishing boat. <laughs> so, so the reviews at university were super low-tech. It was uh, back in the day when you could buy basic kits from Boots and other stores with malt extract super low quality, super basic, ferment it in a bucket in the cupboard, hope it didn't explode, hope it tasted half okay at the end of it. And, and that was kind of that. It was it's still what you do now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's our business plan. <laughs> it's the biggest fail. <laughs> ferment it in a bucket and hope for the best. Um, it was kind of only after university, we started getting into US beers, looking at what's happening in the US from Sierra Nevada with their kind of classic pioneer and pale ale that really inspired us that we kind of upped our game and started to make batches of kind of proper beer with malt and slightly better equipment in Martin's mum's garage. Okay, so take us through the first couple of years of BrewDog. Uh, the first year was a complete stone cold disaster. No one wanted to buy our beer. Everyone told us to make beer with less flavor, with less bitterness, with less hops, that our labels look stupid. Nobody wanted to know. And we were working almost 24 seven, sleeping in sacks of malt in the floor, filling bottles by hand, doing deliveries out the back of my beat up Volkswagen Golf and just going absolutely nowhere. Like wondering how we were going to pay our bank loan back. And I'd actually started working part time back in the fishing boat just to try and supplement the, the income. So yeah, the first first year was very, very tough. After a couple of years, uh, I understand that you, you actually opened up your first pub, I think it was in 2009, so two years after running the business in Aberdeen. Was that always the intention that you'd, you'd, you'd brew and actually open your pub? Because obviously, you know, I think probably most people's, certainly my experience with BrewDog, is seeing seeing your beers on supermarket shelves, seeing it for sale elsewhere. But I have come across, obviously, the BrewDog venues. 
Um, and you, you know, I, I think we said in the intro they're over eighty. I don't know, what, you know, how old that number is, but I don't know if you've got an, a more up to date number of how many there are. But was that always the intention that you were going to go into actually, you know, running your own venues? Well, the, the up-to-date number is 102. The more important question at the moment is how many of that 102 are actually open, <laughs> which is four. Uh, the ones in Sweden have remained open during the pandemic, albeit on a social distancing basis. No, it was never the, the intention. It kind of happened by accident, and it was kind of born out of frustration. So we couldn't find anywhere in Aberdeen, our hometown, where we wanted to go hang out and have a good beer. So the place that we ended up opening had been closed for five years. It was 100 meters from the apartment I used to live in. I was walking past this kind of boarded up closed pub every single day. And one day I just thought, what the hell, we can do something with this space. So most of the construction work we did ourselves because we had no money. And we just thought, at the very least, this is going to give us and our buddies somewhere cool to hang out in Aberdeen that's got our beers, a selection of our favorite beers from all over the planet. So we don't have to go and drink cheap industrial beer in a place that we don't really want to hang out without getting overly granular the genuinely curious you know what what are the startup costs for a, part, a derelict pub in in Aberdeen how much did you have to invest in that were you stocking other beers was it literally just your one brew dog line we paid 110,000 for the premises so we, we bought the premises for 110,000 and to put that into perspective some of our bigger London locations probably pay five times that in annual rent so to buy the location in Aberdeen we paid what is maybe two or three months rent in London so much of the construction work was kind of favours so my friend was an electrician offshore so when he wasn't offshore he helped us do the wiring other friend was a welder we used kind of reframe materials so we spent about 50,000 putting it together we had 14 lines when we opened Eight of those were our own beers, and the other ones were some of our favorite guest beers, some imported especially from the States, and some kind of European and UK beers as well. Okay, so moving forward from you've got one, one location in Aberdeen, you've got a few lines at this point. Take us through the, like, the year five, where are you at? Like, how fast has the business grown? Where are your locations, you know? There was a key catalytic event at the end of year one, so we were kind of going nowhere, and we ended up sending some beers into a Tesco beer competition and I kind of forgot about it. And uh, a few weeks later, I got a phone call from Tesco saying it would finish first, second, third and fourth in this Tesco beer competition. <laughs> I was like, OK, wow, thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much. So I, I flew down to London and I went to the Tesco headquarters at the time, which were in Chesant, not the most glamorous location. I was like, wow, this is Tesco headquarters. OK, and I met the I met the Tesco beer buyer, a guy called Ian Target back in the day. And uh, he was like, James, look, your beers are fantastic. We love these four beers that won the competition. And we want to put these four beers in 400 stores nationwide. And we think we can sell between 1,000 and 2,000 cases a week. And I essentially sat there with my best poker face on and didn't mention anything at all about the fact this was two guys and a dog filling bottles by hand. You especially didn't mention the dog filling bottles by hand yeah, to the yeah, Tesco yeah, buyer. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So we signed a contract that was due to start in four months time with Tesco and we had no idea what were we going to do. So we went to the bank and asked our bank for a loan for a bottling machine and fermentation tanks and the bank just laughed at us. And this was this was kind of start of 2008 when the global economy was going in a tailspin. They were like, you're losing money. You're not paying your bank loan back. There's no way we can give you more money here. So we decided to try a different bank. So we went to see HSBC and we said to the guys at HSBC, our bank, Bank of Scotland, have just offered us an amazing finance package and a bottling line and fermentation tanks. We've got a contract with Tesco. 
we're a young up and coming company. If you can match this offer for finance we've got from Bank of Scotland, we will shift all of our banking to you. And you want to work with us, we're kind of going places as a, as a business. And for some bizarre reason, they gave us the money. We've been banking with HSBC ever since. We got the bottling line in. Uh, the beer came off the bottling line two weeks before it was due to go to Tesco. And that kind of really game changed everything for us as a, as a business. It got into Tesco. It started selling quite well. And Tesco, Punk IPA kind of picked up some additional distribution. And that was a kind of pivotal moment in our history, I would say. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. As Dan said in the intro, like, uh, you know, funding through banks and your friends and family hasn't been the only way. And you've been very effective with your your crowdfunding. And, uh, you know, other companies have turned to this, but I don't know of a better example of, of people who have uh, done this than you guys. Um, where did that kind of come from? Was it was it something that, that you came up with or and, and how did you actually turn it into being, you know, the equity for punks and, and really kind of grow that? Because I, th- I think I read somewhere that you've got like a hundred thousand over a hundred thousand external investors now uh, we've got over a hundred and thirty thousand equity punk investors we've used it to raise over 80 million in our business but for us it's not about finance it's about building a new type of business it's a new type of model for a consumer focused company in the 21st century and it's a model that shortens the distance between ourselves and the people who enjoy the beers that we make so we don't see them as investors we see them as advocates ambassadors or biggest fans or harshest critics but people who are very much on the journey with us by investing they get a whole heap of benefits lifetime discount in the bars online shop access to beers access to events and it's 
investments in companies like ours that are usually reserved for private equity, but we've kind of opened up that to everyone and we've got pockets of community all over the planet. And it's something that I really love about the business we've built. The fact that we are this community owned business with 130,000 co-owners, equity punks is part of what we do. And you came up with this term fanvestor as well, right? Which is this like nice meld of the, the, the two different concepts. How much do you think that, you know, the use of language, you know, um, punk IPA and punk investors and fanvestors and stuff, um, how much of that do you think has been really core and maybe even a tip for other brands looking to follow in your shoes? I think we've always wanted to do things differently and speak about things in different ways from other companies. We've got our own voice. We've got our own way of doing things. Punk IPA was our first beer, but I think that attitude underpins everything that we do. It's DIY. It's not dependent anyone for anything. But at the same time, we saw that beer in our company almost as a modern day rebellion against bland, tasteless mass market beer. So it kind of really embodies that attitude in two fronts. Um, so Obviously, we're going to come on to it, but up until now, can you take us through some of the hardest moments of your of your career together? So, I mean, this has obviously reframed things, but I'm just super fascinated what difficult really looks like before COVID-19. <laughs> well, what difficult looks like before COVID-19 and what difficult looks like now are in two separate ends of the end of the spectrum because this has been far more difficult than anything I could ever imagined. Up until now, for me, the big, big difficulty has been trying to find the balance when it comes to a senior management and leadership team. And that's probably where I've made so many mistakes. Um, I think we're in a really good place now, but there's been a lot of mistakes made on that journey and a lot of learnings on that journey as well. And I think companies and businesses and people's always get to make mistakes and it's how you act and how you kind of move on and how you change things that are going to define you so one of the things that we launched last year was a salary cap in our business so nobody can join the business and be paid more than seven times what the entry level position in the business is paid that ticks up to 14 but you've got to be with us seven years so it goes up by a factor of one per year and then kind of most see companies i think the average in the uk the average pay gap between lowest paid and highest paid is over 100 in the us it's over 200 and that's just not the type of company that we want to build but by having the salary cap in place it very much means that we need to hire develop our leaders from within our business as opposed to trying to hire them externally which is where i've made a lot of mistakes as, as ceo of this business which is why we've now got the philosophy which is working much better we want to develop our next generation of leaders from within the business so your answer is really indicative of someone that um, has had a, has had a harrowing experience and learned learned from it without wanting to necessarily reference what happened to them. So, what do you think the impact has been on on that? Because obviously the question is, what are some of the hardest moments? And your answer is literally the lessons you've learned, which is great. But it'd be really helpful for listeners that you know that need to understand, right? Because you first time CEO understandably don't have a fucking clue what you're doing because no one does going to make mistakes uh super helpful if you can give some context yeah of course so uh, we got to a stage in our growth journey where i mistakenly believed that the way to take the business to the, this next level was to hire a reasonably expensive reasonably fancy management team with impeccable backgrounds from big blue chip companies so we got some fancy London recruitment consultants to help us with a project. 
and we ended up hiring six or seven people into very senior positions from external kind of big companies and the culture clash was just off the charts. So these were great people, these were very capable people, but I didn't put nearly enough onus on the value of culture fit when I hired these people and all these people have since left the business and the business is a much better place now, but just seeing people come in and lead parts of our business without having the understanding for how we do things, without having the passion, without necessarily having the drive, without being aligned in our vision. But that all comes back to me. And I think there's a amazing quote by an author called Ben Hordovitz, who actually wrote this book that I've got here that's never too far from me, but it's like, Hard thing about hard things, yeah. Yeah, as, as a CEO at certain times, your company is going to do things that are so stupid, you never thought you'd be associated with such incompetence. But as CEO, it's all your fault. So everything that happens in this company is a direct consequence of someone who have hired or instructed or what they've done. So when things go wrong, there's absolutely no one to blame but yourself. And it's you who've got the kind of onus on it, on things to fix it. And we've done loads of great things. But yeah, it was definitely a serious strategic misstep when I decided to try and hire a, a fancy senior team to help take the business to the next level. Um, with a journey like yours, where you go from two blokes and a dog in a like n- nothing room in, in Aberdeen to, I mean, your company is valued at over a billion dollars, correct? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the very misleading and unfair question you can tell me to fuck right off and mind my own business over is what kind of challenges have you found with your own ego during that journey? Right. As in, have you have you seesawed? Because basically everything you just said is is um, the kind of comments you get from people that have learned some horrible lessons along the way and had a smack in the face about humility and are having a great attempt at the second run to fix those things. I'm saying this with no prior understanding at all of your personality, but I'm very curious if in the rise of building such a out there punk brand even in itself right a punk brand is is a very like cavalier way to grow a business do you feel like your own personality has gone on a real journey as well and what are your lessons through that whoa you guys have got tough questions (laughs) it's you know no easy ride here it's uh an interview counseling session yeah exactly it's a great precisely it's a great space for you to 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 come on and 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 think these things through live in front of an audience that will judge you magnificently for it so yeah hell of a tough question um i think anybody who runs or throw in business could relate to the fact that you go from like celebrating your highest high to like fighting in the depth of your lowest lows and like the blink of an eye. So like things change so quickly, success is so fleeting and we have always been kind of on the edge. So we've been kind of on the edge from a marketing perspective and that was deliberate and that was intentional because with no marketing budget, the only way we could get our name out there, the only way we could get our message out there, which is stop drinking bland mass market and sipping beer like zombies there's this whole universe of amazing beers that you just don't know exist and the only way we felt we could get that message out there was to do things that were on the edge that were provocative that were high octane and as you can are on that edge you often overstep it and we've definitely overstepped it and in, in the past and also we have been so focused on high growth so we've been we kind of hold the record for the most consecutive years in the sunday times fast track 100 and you can only grow like that by being on the edge of cash flow all the time being on the edge of over trading all the time taking big stupid gambles all the time so like 
constantly kind of balancing on the edge of, of those two things is definitely tough. And in terms of what we've done and in terms of what we kind of built as a company, I'm always like so focused on what's next. And all I think we've done so far is put ourselves in a position to do something good and to do something meaningful. So for me, I think the next five years is getting to define us as a company. So I'm just super focused, super focused with my team and kind of trying to build the best business that we can, trying to look after people, trying to look after the planet and trying to make a difference and trying to raise the standard when it comes to beer. And I realized that's probably a complete dodge of what was a difficult question. So you can try asking it again a second way and see if you get more success. Well, I guess, you know, it's, it's less so, um, you know, the, the answer very, very well might be like lying exactly how you've answered it. But I guess part of my question is is trying to understand also the mental health toll on you. Like you've just something you just said there, which is a perfect example. And I suppose it isn't sadly much different to unicorn founders any more than it is right at the start startup founders, which is being on the edge of cash flow, being right on the edge of cash flow with a lot of different bills to pay and a lot of people's salaries that rely on you is a stressful situation. And doing that on repeat is a stressful situation. So I guess I'm also very curious about your, you know, your mental health journey and how you've handled that as a leader. And if you find that as the years go on, you you just become more resilient to these things or actually when they occur they they do take a toll well to quote our friend ben horovitz again uh, the first rule of ceo psychological meltdown is not to speak about ceo psychological meltdown listen it is it is it's tough we've got over two thousand people in our business at the moment and um, we've got one hundred thirty thousand investors but at the same time we are so passionate we're so focused on on what we what we do that I wouldn't want anyone else doing this except for myself. So things get tough at times. There's pressure at times, but also I feel so lucky to be able to do something that I love to build a company with my amazing management team at the moment in a way that we want to kind of try and change the world of beer and business at the same time. But it definitely comes with challenges. It definitely comes with a bit of pressure and it definitely gets definitely gets tough at times it's often tough to disconnect it's often tough to to switch off <laughs> sleeping is is a constant challenge for any entrepreneur who's on the edge but i think all of these things is kind of part and parcel of a leadership role in a high growth company and some people enjoy these challenges and some people kind of don't enjoy these challenges but over the piece i've definitely enjoyed the challenges definitely up for the fight that it brings and most of all very excited about what we can go on and do from here as a business have you ever been so stressed that you just completely fucking let go and had a glass of wine like a heathen <laughs> <laughs> um i've never been so stressed that i've done that i've uh, broken one phone by throwing it against the wall Fair. That's a much more, that is a much more punky answer. I prefer it. Um, okay. Well, I mean, look, coming <laughs> next time I'm straight on the Sauvignon Blanc. So. Yeah, exactly. So coming on to, uh, to stress and, you know, the, the real theme of the series, which is like managing, uh, businesses through a, an unprecedented pandemic. So talk to us about that. How, how, like, firstly, how are you? personally so you're the only person sitting in your office right now so i think the most reasonable question to ask is how are you are you are you doing okay mentally um and then the second is you know how how has the business had to react to covid at the moment so yeah i think i think i'm doing just about okay but this is being crazy from a business perspective so we we lost essentially 70 percent of our revenue overnight and as a management team we were just kind of thrown into blind panic and we kind of spent 24 hours 
in a complete daze, daze of what the hell are we going to do? How the hell do we get out of this situation? We quickly managed to move into move into action mode, and we've kind of said to our team all along, we've got two focuses through this: a, ensure we survive as a business, and two, or b, protect as many jobs as we as we possibly can. And I think the sad reality is there's many amazing businesses that are just not going to survive. And the latest estimates I've seen is that up to 25 to 30% of the European workforce could be unemployed as a result of COVID-19. So it's insanely tough for all businesses. It's also insanely tough for our business. So we want to survive, protect as many jobs as we can. But a longstanding point in our charter and something ingrained in our DNA is we want to show that business is a force for good. So throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've also been doing all we can to help our country and help our community get through things as well. I think so far we're coming through it just about okay. We've managed to continue with strong sales in the UK supermarkets and decent online sales. And that seems to be the kind of anchor that will help us fight our way through this one, but definitely tough. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes sense, right? As in people are drinking more, they're just drinking in a different place. Or I shouldn't say drinking more, it's just they're changing where they drink and that makes a lot of sense. But obviously being very familiar that you've got all of these pubs. You know, I live in Camden. I live right next to one of your pubs. That was the first London when we opened that one with a tank and we hired that tank from a website called tanksalot.com. So if you ever need a tank, that's uh, where to go. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like I say, obviously it's been closed for a while now. Uh, it's a very different, it, at the end of the day, like, you know, a lot of different um, brewing companies will have different experiences through COVID, but, you know, Heineken don't own pubs and, well, actually, technically, apparently they do, but you get my point. It's, uh, it's, it's a different kind of scenario for you. You're having to face, and I'd love you to answer some of the questions and give us some insights, but, you know, you, you, you are having to face some of the real life experiences that pub owners, which is such a core part of a British culture, are having to face, you know, like when, when do you reopen? How do you reopen? How does social distancing work? Even if you can give us some insights from what you're seeing in Sweden would be super helpful as well, please. So we think it's going to be a very, very tough couple of years for hospitality. It's tough at the moment because we're closed. I think there's even tougher times ahead for the hospitality industry in the, in the UK and beyond. In the government furlough scheme, and we've got 800 people on that scheme at the moment, we think the government have acted very well, very decisively to support team members and to support businesses in the UK. I think the very dangerous time for hospitality businesses is when you're allowed to open again, that'll come with some, I think, pretty severe and probably rightfully so, socially distancing constraints and how you can operate. But we're also going to be operating in a environment, I think, of drastically reduced consumer confidence when it comes to gathering socially in public places. And the reality is most hospitality businesses slash all hospitality businesses cannot survive in 50 or 60% of their revenue. The economics doesn't work. So it's almost cheaper and you'll lose less money to be closed than open and doing 50% of your revenue. I think a lot of the bars and restaurants that we know in the high street of the UK are simply not going to open again. I, th I think it's a very challenging time and hospitality in the UK employs 3.5 million people. It's, it's a huge part of this country's economy and some big challenges ahead. And we, we don't know, we don't know the answers. All we can do is do the best we can in accordance with the government guidance and government advice. You guys are pretty on the money and innovative in general though, with how you approach stuff. So 
I fail to believe you if you told me that you haven't sat through some creative brainstorming session of uh, playing out a doomsday scenario of what you think it could look like and what you would do. So do you have any fun ideas for us about what you do think the future might look like uh, over the next couple of years and how you'd approach it? So we've actually implemented our kind of big, big idea on that one so far, which is using our buyers as delivery hubs for the on-demand economy. So we think whilst people's probably going to go out less, they're still going to want that kind of premium hospitality experience. So we've built an app, it's called Hopdrop. You can download it. Uh, you can download it now. We've got 18 locations open using it in the UK. And within one hour, you can order any of our beers, which are on tap, anything from our food menu and get it delivered to your house. So it's essentially like having one of the world's best beer bars in your living room. Uh, we also opened it with a 50% discount for NHS workers. It's been live for 12 days now, and it's been it's been really, really good for us. So it's been it's been really busy. And for us, that's a bit of a hedge for the future as well. So it's good for now, but it's also good for an environment where we open at perhaps 50% of the sales numbers that we used to have. I'd love to talk about your very famous now and very, very well responded to, of course, hand sanitizer line basically can you talk to us about that please yeah so we we kind of quickly as a team what things can we do to help our country and help our community get through this and like i said we want to show that business can be a force for good so we've been using our distillery to make hand sanitizer we've also been using a lot of the team from our bars who are not working at the moment because the bars are are not open to help us pack that hand sanitizer so to date we've made shipped and donated so donated completely for free over 300,000 bottles of medical grade hand sanitizer we have supplied healthcare charities we've supplied key frontline workers and we've also supplied nhs hospitals as well it's been a hell of a project for us we went from not knowing anything about sanitizer at all to being a fully accredited nhs supplier in just two weeks and it's something that our team and our community are very proud of and we're happy to use the resources we have, use the business we have to do what we can to help. Have you had some learnings along the way about uh, how to make hand sanitizer? I mean, I, I saw I saw maybe you on Twitter or you on Facebook or something, but uh, commenting that you didn't quite get it right the first time. Yeah, uh, the first time it was 68% ABV um, and to supply hospitals, it needed to be 80% ABV. And it's also the first time we've ever been accused of not putting enough alcohol into something. <laughs> so good. And now it's time for some good news here on Secret Leaders. Each week you can follow me on Twitter at Dan Murray Serta and share your good news to get featured here in Secret Leaders to keep spirits high in the startup world during the C word. Andy Davis has created 10x10 Angel Syndicate specifically for Black and BAME founders raising between 100k to 500k. Now the easiest way to get in touch with him if you're interested would be to follow him on Twitter at Mr Andy Davis D A V I S. Colin Saunders of Open for Vintage reports that they've had a great Q1, up five times of Q1 2019, and both April and May are up two times April 2019. As Open for Vintage only sells merchandise from independent retailers whose stores are closed at the moment, this growth has continued to provide a valuable revenue channel for them. Also, all merchandise they sell is pre-owned, so it has also been great to see customers continue to embrace sustainable shopping even during this difficult time. Well, well done to Colin. You can support them and the circular economy at openforvintage.com. 
Katz Keeley is the founder of Beep and has built Frontline.live, a new web-based app that's allowing frontline workers to report personal protective equipment, PPE, shortages. NHS staff have used Frontline.live, which it launched recently, to report a lack of life-saving equipment such as hand sanitizer, masks, goggles, and gowns. They can tweet the items they need, their work postcode, and a photo, and the hashtag Frontline map, or complete an online form and remain anonymous to get their equipment. The PPE requests are plotted on a real-time map that can be viewed by policymakers and suppliers. So you can find all of that at www.frontline.live. Huge congrats to Cats! That's a great effort. Now that's all for this week. If you want to feature next week, then just get in touch with me at Dan Murray Serta on Twitter. Now back to Brewdog. Okay, trying to understand the reality of running the business right now, you are sitting in an empty office, basically, right? And essentially an empty brewery. I saw on LinkedIn yesterday, you doing a tour around the office, you're sitting there on your own. Really might be a completely stupid question. But, you know, we had uh, the founders of of All Plants and uh, Mindful Chef on um, last week's episode, you know, same, same kind of question to them is you're creating a physical supply chain related product. You know, if you're sitting in an MD brewery, how on earth is fulfillment actually happening? So I'd love you to give some insight into how that's happening and how you've had to change things as well. So our offices are completely empty, but the production side of our business is, is, is not quite as empty. So all the office team are working from home and that's been working much better than we imagined going into this. And I think one of the long-term implications of this pandemic, much less business travel, much more homeworking, people realizing it, okay, how much more productive can I be if I don't have a two hour commute time each day? People realizing, hey, I don't need to fly here, fly there. We can do this on Zoom like we're doing just now. So office side of the business has been working okay. And from a production perspective, we are continuing to go 24-7. So with increased safety uh, rules in place, we've got a thermal imaging camera on arrival. We've got a plethora of hand sanitization stations. Uh, we've got masks and visors available for team members who want them. We've kind of socially distanced breakout areas. But we are making beer. We're bottling beer and we're canning beer. 24 hours a day, seven days a week at the moment. And we have to do that to keep up with the demand that we've got at the moment from online shopping and supermarkets. So yeah, we are, we're still going, we're still making beer and we're still selling beer. How has demand been then? So can you give us some insights? And obviously we've talked about the pub side, but what is demand actually like right now compared to usual? So demand in the channels in which we're operating in are really good and almost kind of one and a half to two times what it would normally be. The problem for us as a business Export channel almost completely gone at the moment. Our own bars and pubs completely gone at the moment. UK on-premise customers completely gone at the moment. But the channels that we have got are performing well, good sales, and that's what's given us a fighting chance at getting through this in one piece and hopefully get coming out the other side stronger as a business. Uh, are you able to talk about what kind of revenue hit you've actually taken overall because of it? Yeah, so our initial estimates going into this is that we would take a kind of 70% revenue hit off of our top line. Um, supermarket sales and online sales have been better than we thought they would be. So we're probably looking at about a 55% revenue hit for April. Who knows what it's going to be for May and what parameters are going to come at us, but about 55% of top line revenue gone. How much time have you actually spent do, like scenario planning around this? You know, every time you get new information or I know it's, I know it's a very hard question to answer, but are you with the team just kind of going with the flow a little bit or are you trying to consistently like predict 
things you can't really predict, but having to sort of show that level of insight and professionality. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to do both. So it's so difficult to know what's going to happen, kind of where this is going to go from here. And obviously public health and safety has got to be the number one focus. Um, and we're just kind of doing all we can to keep going. It doesn't feel quite as scary from a business perspective as it did in the first few weeks of it when we didn't know how much like how much of everything was going to be locked down. Are any businesses going to be allowed to continue operating and manufacturing? What, how long is that going to be for? And I think we're maybe at the point now where we're speaking about, okay, how does coming out of lockdown look? So it doesn't feel quite so, so scary as it did in those first couple of weeks where our entire business could have very easily been shut down. We could have said, okay, all non-essential businesses close and beer production doesn't count as essential. And that was something we, we actually thought might might happen. And there's no way we could set a scenario plan for that because it's just everything just stopped. Really, I mean, coming into the, the tail end of our interview now, but like very hard question for you to answer given uh, the time we do live through. But what advice do you actually have for anyone who's perhaps now, you know, left their job and it might be looking to set up something for themselves? Because I guess that is the other side to this, right? Lots of people now with the, the space and time to just stop and think, not able to work. What would you say to those people that are considering it, assuming obviously this isn't the new normal at all? I actually think so very unfortunate for people to to lose their jobs at this time, but I think the reality is that hundreds of millions of people all around the planet are going to lose their jobs as a result of, of COVID-19. The unemployment figures in the US are astronomical. The unemployment figure estimates in the UK, Europe are, are terrifying. So, so people are going to lose their jobs. And for me, if you're looking to start something new, there's a lot of opportunity at this time. So I think COVID-19 is going to change our world in ways that would have been unimaginable only two months ago. And that ultimately means opportunities for small players who are quick and nimble and who can kind of play these changes far better than bigger companies with infrastructure and overheads can. So now, now I think is a, as good a time as, as ever to start up your own business and hopefully the legacy of the terrible strategy that is COVID-19 is going to be that people are far more mindful of how interlinked and interdependent we are on this planet, that people are far more aware of the impact of what we're doing to the planet, of how close we actually are to tipping point, of how important it is that we make huge and sweeping changes towards sustainability. And there's going to be other implications from lockdown and COVID-19 that we can't even imagine at the moment, which I think this massive flux of change, like things are going to change more in 2020 than they have in the previous 20 years possibly combined, which I think for anyone who's smart enough and tenacious enough leads to a lot of opportunities from a small startup business perspective. If you uh, if you look at the way that you started up with BrewDog, you took an insight, like there's this really interesting craft uh, movement in America. No one's nailed it over in Europe. This is a great opportunity for us. What kind of insights or opportunities do you think, James Watt, in 2020, if you were doing it all again, what kind of stuff would you look at and say, that's a really interesting opportunity that I'd be looking into right now? I think a far bigger focus on sustainability is almost going to become a hygiene factor when it comes to when it comes to companies. It's something we're working really hard on ourselves. It's a path we've been on for the last couple of years with a vengeance, but that sustainability piece, I think, is just so, so important. I think people are becoming ever more aware of 
queer things that make consumer made, of the values of the companies behind these things. Um, I think people are becoming far more health focused and health conscious with the things that they consume, with the things that they eat as well. So I think all of these spaces, if I was looking for an opportunity to start something new, it would be in some of these spaces. And I guess before thinking about what you would do next as a business, uh, and I promise you this is one of the last last difficult questions I'm asking you, but what, what would you say to your 18-year-old self to make sure you avoided some of the potential mistakes or things you'd rather do differently? I would say my 18-year-old self, I mean, it's bizarre. If I look back at the kind of biggest mistakes that I've made as a business, it's when I've listened too much to external people, but people who have got no skin in the game at all. So I think it's just everyone's like so keen to give out advice and some of that advice is valuable, but it's just having the filter, understanding where that advice is coming from. And I think the realization is like, no one who we speak to is going to care about our business as much as we, as we do. No one is going to know our customers as well as we do. No one's going to have the passion that we have for beers. No one's going to know the culture like we know it. So be very wary about what pieces of advice you look to listen to. And like I said, I can trace most of our big mistakes back, including the hiring of the senior fancy team to putting too much onus on external advice. So then putting you on the spot for one last time um, and speaking of completely useless advice no one should listen to, what is your useless advice that no one should listen to for entrepreneurs starting out that want to follow your path? I think the only logical thing that my useless advice could be is don't listen to advice, which would also apply to this advice just now. Love it. Absolutely perfect meta and a brilliant way to end. James, thank you so much for your time, mate. Cool. Thanks for thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to listening to the, the podcast. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. You and I, unlike our nature, have not been on an aeroplane for more than eight weeks now. Amazing. How much more efficient have I been dealing with my clients in Asia? Oh, infinity more times efficient. It is just incredible. Now, my question would be, would I have to go back and do those uh, flights? Probably not. That was Mo Gordat, the international best-selling author of Soul for Happy, but also an entrepreneur who started over 25 businesses in his life, all as a co-founder and, of course, with some successes and failures under his belt, including a well-known stint at Google X as their chief business officer. So he's got some great advice for businesses at any stage on how to handle yourself during this pandemic. You can hear all about him and his thoughts in two weeks' time, as we're taking one week off to recharge on our side, line up more amazing guests and continue to bring you the the highest quality good news and startup survival tips from the world's very best. So see you in two weeks. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, 
Editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts and our upcoming live events on our website SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we will add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.